Well, the result is in and Humza Yousaf will be uh, the next SNP leader and uh, doubtless first minister of Scotland. Uh, we ponder what that means and the significance of having uh, the first Muslim leader uh, of Scotland and in fact, um, political leader pretty much within Europe. We look as well at what he might take from the campaigns of his rivals. Um, those useful points that were landed uh, during the campaign, are there factors that he can pick up and run with? What cabinet posts might he allocate? We speculate a bit about runners and riders. And also notice that, strangely enough, independence and support for it doesn't seem to have dipped a lot, which might just suggest that getting yourself and the question of independence into the news, even warts and difficulties and all, is better than having it not talked about. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi chums and welcome to this week's Leslie Reddick podcast and I really don't know what we're going to talk about today because nothing at all has actually happened yesterday that we can actually go through you know, and I'm going to have you're going to have to stop starting programs like that actually because yes. everything <laughs> is eventful I mean yeah. there's hardly been an uneventful yeah, week know. for what feels like decades but it's possibly yeah. months but anyway yeah. yes yeah, because it's a really odd one, Leslie, because I was thinking to myself, in, purely in terms of entertainment, and if it can be described as such, that uh, the result went not the way that would have given us intense discussion about potential splits in the SNP. Would the Butte House Agreement would have been jettisoned? Yes, it would have been. What, how would the SNP government manage to get its budgets through? What were the machinations that were going? None of this has happened. So that's it. We've got absolutely nothing to talk about after the election of Hamza Yusuf as the new leader of ASNP, and this afternoon he's going to be elected the first minister of Scotland. So nothing to talk about at all. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's very, <laughs> it was very noticeable being there yesterday at the media village that was set up again in the same position that that it, all the tents and you know little cubicles and stuff were during the indie ref. That. Um, it, there was kind of a sudden drop in interest completely <laughs> as soon as there wasn't any likelihood of being blood on the carpet. I mean, things that I, I was on seven different things, one after the other yesterday. Um, and uh, people had at the beginning made, you know, tentative bookings for today, all cancelled. Uh, some of the broadcasters that were there and had been intending to stay till today, like Sky, I think, just went home last night. So basically nothing much to see here because all of those you know, consequentials were not going to happen. Um, but it was it was a pretty amazing day to be kind of around the place, mostly because everybody you'd never have the chance to meet in an ordinary day of, of anything. Um, we're all filing in and out of this, you know, this this little media village. Um, so it, it, it was fascinating. And of course, you can't get away from it. Um, that that election, I mean, we were watching it, only able to watch it because it was obviously the count was at Murrayfield. Um, and when they came out of the wee room where they'd been given, you know, they, they, they'd been told in advance of the official announcement, just in advance what the actual voting was. Um, even then, you know, you could see Kate Forbes was sitting back with a look of what I can only describe as complete relief, actually, on her face. Um, <laughs> And Humza was sort of sitting forward, ready to stand up, you know. So, I mean, even at that point, you could see actually what had happened. Um, and of course, everyone by now has said, and it's an important thing, obviously, in its own right to make the point that this is the first Muslim first minister of Scotland. And I think political leader in, in Europe, which is mm -hmm. really jaw dropping, actually. Um, 
And that's a massive statement. It also means that he kind of embodies this message that he's he's been pushing all the way through about the experience he's had as, a, as an ethnic minority in Scotland being what drives him forward on equality and all sorts of other things. I mean, that's where a lot of it's coming from. I thought his acceptance speech as well, though, was interesting in that he cited John Smith, yes. um, who wouldn't be your average icon of the independence movement, but nonetheless, and perhaps not even an icon of the social of, of, of sort of the wider socialism, but certainly a kind of forefather of Scot of Scotland shaping itself with his he was the one that coined the phrase about the settled will of Scotland pushing towards devolution. But I thought it was interesting that he touched across to that because that plus his talk about his grandparents' experience as workers in, in working class jobs here when they came to Scotland is definitely touching base with a labour base, you know, which is the probably the largest component of SNP support um, and thus a very different um, direction of travel envisaged than the one that you might have had with Kate Forbes for all sorts of different reasons. But particularly, uh, you know, the, the supposition was that Kate could reach across a different divide towards more conservative voters whether or not she could have reached them, but whether she could have brought them, you, you know, might have been a different question. Um, but still, that's where we are. And I thought this speech was, you know, was a was a very good one, actually. And, and, and it didn't it didn't offer any hostages to fortune to all the different commentators who were there in the subsequent uh, uh, interviews, other than the totally obvious ones, which is, OK, there is now a bit of a, you know, a task at hand to try to move on from this. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was an interesting one because I again, I had to thank uh, uh, Miss Ella Brani, uh, my primary school teacher, who who got me uh, and clued up on mental arithmetic. Because the moment I got the 70 percent turnout and the, the 70 around 72,000 numbers and uh, the first one, the first uh, announcement was made, I thought, why me? Uh, in order for Kate Falls to actually win, she's going to have to pick up virtually all of uh, Ash Reagan's second preferences. And that was one of the, the, the things that there was a major assumption made, possibly on my part, that that, that would be what happened. But there were, a, there were I think there were around about, uh, I mean, must have been around 16 or 1700 of uh, Ash Reagan's second preferences went to Hamza Yusuf and got him over the line. So it, it, it begs the question then that, Within that Ash Reagan support base, there were people who were obviously concerned about uh, GRR, but they didn't immediately switch to Kate Ford because of, I think, potentially what you've identified with Hamza Yusuf. He's the first, I think, the first SNP leader to actually come out when questioned about his, his ideology. He said, I'm a socialist. I believe in progressive taxation. And we'll wait and see how that plays out. But the first one to actually articulate that, and as we noted when he was at the uh, uh, the, the trade union group, uh, Hustings for the SNP, he he both to you and I seemed very, very comfortable and seemed to be amongst these in folk, not just because it was in Glasgow, but he seemed extremely comfortable working and working to that audience. And that's an interesting one, because I think that potentially there you've, you've hit the nail on the head, that that will be the appeal he seeks to go out 
and make, which is one I think is the sensible way to go, which is reach out to Labour voters, um, and which we can get onto later, um, and reach out to Labour voters in order to get them over to the cause of independence. And it will be interesting to see, given the promises that he's made during his election campaign on issues such as land tax, wealth tax, uh, to see where he goes on that. And your yeah. reaction would be interested be his first act, he says, his first act is going to get together an anti-poverty uh, forum. He's going to bring anti-poverty groups together. And that's the very first thing he's going to do as first minister. Mm-hmm. Right. Good one. I mean, I'd, it seems to me there's a contending set of first things he's going to do, because I heard right. also he was going to also sort of um, ask for a Section 30 order just yes. to kind of get the doof out of the way mm-hmm. <laughs> straight off. But just on this business of of then the sort of reaching across to Labour and the pos- possibility of, you know, the attraction of Kate, Kate Forbes being someone who could reach across to the Tories. I mean, there would be a tremendous irony in having elected someone as a leader who could re- reach across to Tories at the same point as Tories are actually shifting to support Labour. Yes. In Scotland. Now, <laughs> yeah. that's not a wholesale move. And no. um, however, there's obviously a set of, 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 sort of unionists who are quite, Eeksy peeksy, as my mother would have said, uh, you know, who can basically swing either way because unionism, which has seemed such an extraordinary possibility given the massive differences between these two parties, but still because unionism is their biggest thing. So they simply look to see who's going to be the biggest, you know, unionist mm. cat on the block, and I will have that one. So quite obviously, uh, the Tories' star is waning, and it might well be then that there's quite that might explain the slight shift there's been in opinion polls. And the interesting thing is. There, despite all the kind of negative talk yeah. of many people, including people within the independence movement f- supporting those other candidates, um, there hasn't been a collapse in support for the SNP. So what we've seen is churning. And this is all that keeps happening within the unionist camp. They, they don't prove, have not proved able to pull people back from a belief in independence. Um, of course, if there's not much action on that, you know, people might begin to wither on the vine. And that is the thing that creates unity in the SNP is a real belief. There is genuinely a strategy, if not something around the corner. I mean, we're not daft if we think there's not going to be something rustled up in six months time or eight months time. OK, we could just about take this if we thought there was a general strategy and not the long grass beckoning. So that's kind of important to get that at some point that there is some sort of strategy into which things fall. Um, and I did hear, you know, quite often uh, homes are talking about rekindling a grassroots movement, which is kind of like, yeah, yeah, OK. <laughs> but yeah. then that's sort of not exactly your shout, mate. You know, I mean, because we've, you know, the S groups and so on have been, it's not like we're not there already. Um, and uh, there would have to be quite a lot of coordination that has not happened for eight years to make that effective. So uh, another of his first things I think would have to be some and this would also be picking up where Ash Reagan was successful, I think, in raising a whole load of points about internal, the lack of real democracy within the SNP. All those points are going to have to be raised, uh, settled at some point because that's where she scored. And in fact, she actually gave gave Humza, um in a sense, a, a bit of a start, a good start by questioning the membership figures and thus essentially getting rid of Peter Merrill yeah. because he has not had to do it, which 
might have been more difficult, a lot more difficult for him to do, but he's gone. So there's the possibility of a reset there. Now, do not miss this opportunity for crying in a bucket. Do not miss it because there is practically nobody in the SNP apart from absolute card carrying loyalists who have not been hurt one way or another by the procedures of the last eight years. And that is either branches who've been told what candidates to have, which they resented, um, or it's branches that sent in motions to a conference which rejected them, despite knowing how many other branches sent in almost precisely the same motion, because clearly it was the wrong leaves on the line. It's the corporate nature of the SNP conference, and it's the folk who've been elected to the NEC. Now, this does matter um, because it's still going to be the old guard minus Peter Murrell uh, on that NEC making decisions until the next conference in October. So there's going to be you know, an opportunity. You've got to have a new chief executive at some point. I mean, Mike Russell's made very clear that he's not wanting to hang on for, well, longer than this, pretty much. Uh, so that's going to be a pretty key appointment. Um, and, and this has to look like it's some kind of fresh beginning, which totally loses this inclination towards micromanagement of the entire party, which has been a characteristic of the sturgeon Murrell era. So that that's one big one. But but still on this Tory, coming back to the Tory thing, um, if it's true that, you know, Labour is likely to win the next election and you do see vacillations in the polls doing mm -hmm. the a wee bit, but still they are odds on, then absolutely the challenge uh, is is to say why the SNP is a better bet for Scotland than Labour. You know, there's no point playing the old enemy, if you like, uh, when that <clears throat> that is about to sort of walk out the door. So I think that that canniness in the speech to reach across on mentioning John Smith and on bringing some 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 detail in from his own life and, you know, giving us an impression of his grandparents as being um, just workers. Essentially, he's come from the same working background as most of the people he's listening to. Now, on things like Kate Forbes, there's quite a few people saying, well, she was championing a lot of issues that are to do with the Highlands and actually rural Scotland yes. and indeed the Lowlands would have many of the same problems. Um, I I wonder, you know, if he might actually offer her rural affairs as a portfolio mm -hmm. rather than finance. It, it would be difficult. I mean, there's no point really in, in reproducing the quite clear difference of approach that was demonstrated during the um, campaign. There's no point bringing that into the heart of government. And if, if you've won, you've won. I mean, I can remember saying this on something else. If Kate Forbes had won, she'd won and people would just have to adapt and, and get with that because that was the democratic uh, result. But I don't think he will be offering her, nor will she pr probably want to take the, the kind of job of constant friction because we know what they think now differently. Um, so there needs to be somebody who's, you know, working from that hem sheet. But the kind of point she made, and it would reassure a lot of people, I think, in the Highlands uh, that she would have some sort of input, well, control over rural affairs, um, albeit I know there's some folk who were quite worried about the possibility of her government uh, and the, the prospect of, of uh, people like Fergus Ewing being brought back in to, to deal with mm. um, agriculture, which many people felt he was too much in the pocket of farmers and not, not looking at the kind of, again, the green transition that needs to happen 
across our entire food production chain. So um, it'll be interesting to see where that comes. But just coming back to Kate, I hadn't really fully appreciated that she she has three foster, not fosters, she's three uh, stepchildren um, mm-hmm. as well oh, as right. her own bairn, uh, um, which she, uh, if you like, she inherited from her marriage um, that their own mother died. So that is... You know, she and she's living in Dingwall rather than Skye. So that takes probably half an hour off the commute. <laughs> uh, mm. But that's still one heck of a, of a journey to be making all the time. Um, now, I mean, I, I'm saying this. If anyone else had raised questions of children and the capacity to do jobs, I'm sure rightly somebody would, you know, the, the, the response would come. That is sexist. You wouldn't be asking a dad that. Although, indeed, you know, Humza Yusuf did raise the question of his own two bairns. Uh, but there's there's very probably enough for 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 Kate Forbes to be doing in her in her own life, and I don't know if that was what slightly explained the relief look. I mean, uh, which which which, and she was very wholehearted in that embrace of Humsa the mm-hmm. minute you know the the election the, the result was declared. So I mean, she's entitled to think. She also said this was a sort of one-off opportunity, if you like, for her supporters that she wouldn't be coming again to this question of leadership. So, um, of course, again, people are free to to revisit that at some point in the future. And she's young enough that (laughs) there's a lot of future ahead of her. But I do wonder if she might just think, well, you know, I've got there's all sorts of possibilities of what I can do myself now. And, um, you know, wanting to have the the high profile job of finance anyway might just not be the uppermost thing. So, you know, that's Mm -hmm. what we're all waiting for to heal the cabinet. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, that that was one of the things that was going through my head, exactly the same as yourself, was uh, to see where Kate Forrest, she will be part of the cabinet. She's got to be part of the cabinet in, in, in all sorts of levels, not just in terms of bringing the party together, because virtually half the, 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 the those who voted voted for Kate Forbes on first and second preference. But the, the other aspect is that how they would square that circle of the of the, the the differences that were extremely apparent when you actually listen to the last things about the for example, just even just looking at uh, the, the extension of the, the the top level of income tax level uh, which Kate Forbes wasn't going to commit to. And I would also be intrigued about the, the potential of wealth tax and land value tax, etc. So we, we've got those there. And I think that's going to be a key moment is what appointment will he give to Kate Forbes? And I was listening to Radio Scotland this morning and that that uh, Highland and Rural Affairs focus that, that, that you mentioned there came through loud and clear from Kate Forbes supporters saying that this was an area that ought to be tackled. And there was a worry about with the election of Hamza Youssef that this would be a, yet again appealing to the central belt. In other words, people like me. Yeah, and, but... And but I think this is what what's interesting about uh, well one of the many things that's interesting about the candidates is that um, there are all sorts of different reasons people supported them. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's people th- that I know, uh, many people in the Highlands that I know who are, if you like, very socially liberal, who supported um, Kate because she was a Lochaber girl, you know. So I mean, y- y- people might think that's a you know, you might think that's a wrong set of priorities just to get all doughy eyed because somebody comes very near you, you know. But then, you know, if, if you're allowed to be extremely doughy eyed today as a Muslim, um, then you, you probably are allowed to think a Highlander actually becoming first minister would have been a bit of a thing. And um, so it's, there's no point sort of um, sidestepping the fact that each candidate took 
to has many identities and therefore many yeah. sort of outreaches and the opposite. And it's a question of working out what was, you know, what was the most powerful aspect of those. Now, the media would constantly be in there saying that, you know, the powerful thing about Kate Forbes was that she was not a continuity candidate and she was all for change. Um, when you listen to a lot of the hustings, as we all did, mm-hmm. there would be a lot of times where you'd think, I'm not clear what change she's actually, pro- you know, pro- promised on, let's say, for example, you know, the, the internal democracy of of the, the party. Um, there would obviously yeah. have been an intention to change some of the economic policy and change would have been there because she would have essentially dumped two policies, <clears throat> which looked like they're in for a bit of a reshaping anyway. But gender recognition mm. and the bottles thing. Um, but like, you know, when we find the dust finally settles, that's not these are not the biggest things. If, you know, if, if you're you know, again, if you're going to if you're going to play the card of saying, let's listen to what the electorate is saying then the electorate's wanting to know how you're going to do better with the NHS, with the energy crisis, yeah. with cost of living, so on. So in those things, it's not totally clear. And I just may not have been listening hard enough to know what big changes there might have been. Um, so a lot, I think, myself still, that a lot of Kate's appeal was her her real directness and boldness and the sense that she would not be the kind of person who would sit with somebody you know, a lawyer coming in saying, oh, we can't really do that because oh, it was a bit of a... I mean, obviously, she was not going to do stuff that was illegal. But as per column that I wrote on... Uh, oh, gosh, I can't remember now. But for Monday's Herald, you know, there's a lot of... Bold, bold, there's bold things happening around us. And mm-hmm. Scotland is beginning to sink down yeah. the pecking order of the Celtic nations. I mean, we we were across in Belfast and had a great time and picked up a lot of, you know... <laughs> ideas from what was going on there, not least of which, for me anyway, was the absolute fury that's being directed towards the Democratic Unionists at the moment by everyone except Democratic Unionists. And folk might think, I what's new there? But that is kind of new. You know, the official unionists are just uh, now saying, yep, let's get on with uh, trying to get the best of all worlds, which, which they have the capacity to do, thanks to the Northern Ireland Protocol and that Windsor you know, framework. Um, the only people who are playing, oh, but it's still not good enough, is Jeffrey Donaldson, who, God, you know, we were in a taxi. <laughs> oh, yes. Dry, who was, and I mean, you know, OK, so he was eventually identified himself as kind of coming from the other side, as it were. But without checking out where we were, which I'll tell you from being back very often over all these years, um, is is like you you don't venture strong opinions till you're pretty sure who's in the cab with you. And without having checked that out at all, he basically said that, uh, that he would string up the entire DUP, uh, which is a strong view, you know. So the thing is, after the local elections, which have amazingly been postponed for two weeks because of the coronation. So, yep, you get the right peck in order there. You know, democracy comes second to uh, a fancy coronation for an unelected head of state. But anyway, um, after those local elections, it's possible that the DUP might get over themselves and have to deal with the reality, which is that there will be power sharing with a Sinn Féin first minister. And when that day comes, because it will, um, the, the, the Northern Ireland will be able to move forward on a lot of stuff that it needs to sort out, but principally trade. Now, Wales, um, I was at an excellent event uh, at the weekend, Scotonomics, that was really tremendously well organised by Karen van Sweden and uh, William Thompson. 
And it, it took all sorts of expertise in via um, you know, remote links and then in-person uh, contributions. But um, one of the most striking was by uh, somebody from Plaid Cymru who was talking about the kinds of things that are being embarked upon in Wales. They are moving ahead with a national energy company. Now, they haven't got it on the table yet. They haven't started it, but they have committed to, to moving forward with it. They're also creating a national construction company to make sure jobs with all of the new industries are harnessed in Wales. They've embarked on a basic income pilot. They're doing it with, I think it's 2000 care leavers who are being given a, an extra amount of money and they're following that particular cohort to see how it works. Scotland got to, I think, a stage where it was nearly going to do five basic income um, pilots but ended up, I think this is right, not doing any of them because uh, the DWP wouldn't play ball. Now, I don't know why the DWP will play ball in Wales and not in Scotland, or if the Welsh found something that basically allowed them to go ahead with something where the Scots kind of went, mm, no. The biggest thing, and amazingly, this was probably one of the, the strange highlights of yesterday, was a long conversation with Hugh Edwards from the BBC, oh, um, right. who is absolutely um, a a complete Welshman to his core uh, and had loads to say about uh, Wales, the excellent custodianship of Mark Drakeford, although I think his sympathies lie elsewhere. But nonetheless, how essentially clever Mark Drakeford had been as a, as a Labour leader in, in Wales. And the big thing they did is they cancelled an upgrade of a motorway, which I can tell you from having been in Wales lately, is in a sense sorely needed in the fact that the infrastructure of Wales is so appalling compared to Scotland. If everybody thinks that Scotland was underserved back in the day by, you know, infrastructure improvements, and we still have the A9 as a dodgy, you know, well, just you know, ordinary A road in many places. And actually, as we've discussed before, a single track train going mm -hmm. that way as well. But Wells is in a much, much worse position. All its, it almost has an endoskeleton because all its key transport links, both, both its airports are, for example, are actually outside Wales in, this, in the form of Bristol and Manchester, Liverpool or Birmingham. So that because of their border and proximity to England, they've basically been dipping across to, you know, use the infrastructure that's there. So the M, I think it's four. Uh, improvement which people have been waiting for for ages was cancelled by Mark Drakeford at the end of last year um, I think it was I can't remember how many billions was in that project and that billions will now be spent on public transport instead without the involvement of Greens in their coalition mm -hmm. now bring this back to Scotland what are we doing you know, I mean what somebody said to me across in Belfast uh, when they were talking about the leadership that their, you know, their, their perception was in, in NI that um, essentially Scots are the thought leaders when it comes to um, questions of, 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 of social liberties and human rights. And their worry was that if we kind of fell off that perch, there was nobody because there clearly isn't, you know, a start, every, everything in Northern Ireland is pretty far behind in terms of the acceptance of things that are standard here. So, there's there's an expectation that Scotland was leading the pack in lots of ways. Um, and, it, you know, let's hope that in the question of social civil liberties and human rights and so on, that's always going to be the case. 
But we are in danger of falling right behind the pack on all these other issues about setting up bits of infrastructure that let you truly mitigate the damage that comes from Westminster. Yeah. And it would be a blooming irony if um, a Labour First Minister, uh, who has managed to therefore outflank Plaid even a bit in Wales, by demonstrating that he can actually do some pretty canny things within the devolution settlement and actually, however, totally questioning the future of the union. I mean, he's some kid, you know, really. But if he can be doing all of that in Wales, what are we doing here? And I just don't want to hear any more of this, you know, the lawyers said no patter because that's just not good enough. And the, 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 the proof of that pudding may imminently be in the eating in Wales um, in a way that all of us who've questioned the primacy of lawyers within policymaking in Scotland when it came to questions, for example, of land reform, which was just too blooming hot to trot, um, will now be saying, well, there's actually, you know, there's, there's, there's more than just us on the other side of this equation saying we want to see bolder use of policy and to come full circle back again. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people liked about Kate Forbes that without her actually even making very clear what it was she would be bold about, she was just bold. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was bold enough to stand in in, in uh, almost, um, you know, throwing aside all the normal niceties of how you behave in a leadership campaign. She was bold enough to stand in Humes's face and basically tear a strip off him. And he didn't actually respond in the moment in ways he could actually have done. Now, that moment has to be, in a sense, revisited because you do need to know the advances that have happened in Scotland. There is not an absence of record in the last eight years, but you need to make it. And on things like gender recognition, all these things, you also need to approach the public and explain things, not rely on just on votes in Holyrood, which are not covered in enough detail for it to have brought the public with you. Yeah, I mean, because it's, I, I kept going back to a point that you made oh, weeks ago, saying that uh, it's it's not good enough purely just to focus on we've got to do well and be a competent government, but it's squaring that circle of turnaround and saying, and this is what we could do if we had independence. And I notice a lot of was what Hamza Yusuf was talking about, is if we had independence. But you've again hit the nail on the head, is that when we see the example of Wales, now, of course, Mark Drakeford is a Labour leader who is quite willing to work with Plaid Cymru because he knows there is no 50-50 split in Wales in terms of independence. Yeah. That's 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 the key difference up here. I mean, and when we examined the Labour Party this morning, I mean, talk about what Jackie Bailey said in a moment. But that is the key difference up here that to me, the genuine progressive alliance that ought to be taking place up here. If we're looking about it and we cut through what's going on at UK level, if you look at Labour Party voters and supporters up here, the key progressive alliance should be between the SNP and Labour. That really ought to be. But the whole constitutional question drives drives the wedge between that and does limit the potential that you would hope for cross-party cooperation and collaboration on actually tacking the real genuine issues in Scotland rather than waiting for a Keir Starmer Labour Party to get into power in London and maybe, maybe just try and sort these things out. But again, I do not think it chimes with the mood of Labour Party voters and members up here. 
Yeah. And and actually, I think I've said this in the the Herald column. I do have to kind of keep explaining this because I quite appreciate that most people don't read, you know, that. Well, we don't pay the subscription for newspapers anymore. So in the old days, if you wrote something in a paper, you might think someone might have read it. <laughs> I might read it. These yeah. days, you just have to assume it's basically sending stuff into slightly into space. Uh, obviously, not completely. But um, yeah, the point, I, th- I think that is the point that labour, that, you know, the challenge, this challenge that is essentially posed by knowing what Wales is doing and what Northern Ireland will be able to motor on to do at some point in the future, which is move on with some actual, you know, constructive progress and shaping their economy. Um, That one is also a challenge for Labour in Scotland because, you know, Anna Sarwar ain't no Mark Drakeford. You know, and you've absolutely the the reason is because Mark Drake can accommodate Plaid because they're nowhere. You know, they're not the majority party and they're not anywhere in the polls, but it's still a risk. You know, the whole of doing that, that uh, coalition was a risk and it was one he decided to take. It was a risk for him to actually call out, say that the present union is dead. He actually said that. Now, the risk part of that is. As I understand it, um, that, you know, he's 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 standing down at the next Senate elections, which I think are 2025. So he's got until then to try and put the hardware of Wales in a different place, given that actually it has a substantial Tory vote, you know, um, which is, again, not a Tory vote to just mitigate against the possibility of independence, which is what a large mm-hmm. part of the Tory vote has been in Scotland. That's a genuine, we quite like the Tories, Suella Braverman's on our wall type Tory vote, which is, <laughs> you know, a different kettle of fish altogether. Um, but nonetheless, the question is posed to, to Labour. If you're sort of so, you know, why don't you suggest right now setting up a national energy company? Now, I know that Anna Sarwar has suggested that once Labour come in, yeah. there will be an arm of British, great British energy, um, which will be, I don't know what that will be. Will that be sort of little Scottish energy or anyway? No, don't go there. Um, but anyway, he suggested that come the day when they set this up, there will be an arm of Scottish energy, which I, whatever that means. Um, but then that again, you know, and that possibly that makes good politics for him. There's a reason to kind of, you know, come and vote Labour because you're going to get some sort of state control over energy. It certainly should put the heat on uh, Humza to revisit that question. Yeah. He's talked about trying to mop up the mistakes made by Scott Wind auction by trying to have a stake in auctions, um, you know, which is the very least that should happen. And if he's got a kind of set of people coming together on the poverty front, he should ASAP have a set of people coming together on the energy front because it's been pretty woeful. And uh, people who have become experts without any mm-hmm. kind of any any recognition within Butte House, some of whom are Commonweal. And there's a larger set of expertise, I know, that's all been sitting kind of, you know, waiting for any kind of engagement. We need some real strategy on where Scotland could be going within the devolved settlement on energy, because that creates some of the change that he's promised. It's not just tinkering around. It's producing cheaper energy prices at some point, more energy security and changing the shape of of essentially where Scotland can develop as an economy, because energy allows all sorts of other stuff to happen where it's created. And that is much of rural Scotland. So you know, that that one would be one that would be great to see happening. Um, 
So anyway, I'm, I'm rambling off the point, but still, Labour could be doing something flashy now. And I'm not sure for for uh, and, and appealing to the SNP to sort of join them to set up an energy mm-hmm. company now. I mean, that would flank the SNP neatly and show that these guys mean business. But that's not going to happen. Yeah. So, yeah. No, look, as a. Uh, Listening to, to to Jackie Bailey this morning, I mean, it was you, we knew what was coming, which is, this that is continuity labour, basically. Continue, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it is that that, that whole point of Tatana saying, oh, he's been a failure and everything that he's done. Uh, he's the he's the worst uh, secretary in charge of the, the the National Health Service in Scotland since the devolution. Uh, what I found was was that an interesting one. She was asked about, can you? Uh, what, what sort of figures, you know, because you're doing so well on the polls. But as you identified, actually, even at the the worst, you know, the most internecine fighting, uh, SNP still has a, has a substantial lead. I mean, it's kicking along the mid the mid 40s in terms of both Westminster and first past post constituency vote up, up, in, up at a Hollywood election. And Labour, I have to say, just here is going, there's going to be a genuine test of where it actually stands in Labour. Uh, in the English Council elections in May. Now, no, we can't extrapolate entirely from a local authority election, but this is going to be the first test of Rishi Sunak uh, will be these, these May's Council elections. That may be a dose of reality kicking in for, for the Labour Party. What the, my favourite bit, though, was when she was asked, uh, why would EU supporting Scotland vote for Brexiteer Labour? Sorry, no, no, I've got that wrong. Make Brexit work Labour. And it was an immediate pivot to the NHS. And there we have mm-hmm. it. It's going to yeah. be the NHS, NHS, NHS. And that's going to be the task that Humza Yusuf is going to have to make. And that's that point we talked about earlier to say, this is what we're doing well here. We could do better. But improving the service, whilst pointing out quite clearly, because we do not live in England, the vast differences there are in terms of service and outcomes that there are up here. And that's, that's the whole thing, to, to do them both simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to be honest, that's where people like, for example, Philippa Whitford on this is pretty captivating. Yes. Um, I appreciate she's in a different parliament, but she's in the same she's in the same party and in the same area of interest. And actually, because she's able to see what's happened to the English NHS, can absolutely give you the compare and contrast. Um, I just hope that there's more capacity for people to get out more and explain things, whether Humza feels it's difficult because he would say that, wouldn't he? But and of course, they're all wary of sort of looking like saying, well, England's gone to hell in a handcart, you know, so you should be blooming lucky you live here. But if if somebody on the on the SNP benches is not going to say it, I mean, are we all supposed to know that on our own? You know, so, I mean, all of that is a is a kind of is a challenge for what lies ahead. Um, but yeah, on that uh, sort of pivot from the Brexit thing, it was interesting because I was sitting beside uh, uh, John Curtis yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he was asked something about the future of, of the independence uh, issue, and it's interesting, actually, how um, although a lot of people will think John will just go with the sort of um, general kind of commentary mm-hmm. flow, which is it's all kind of doomed. It's never going to happen, whatever, whatever. I mean, John will be the one who keeps coming back to the point that he's pinpointed within the movement of voting patterns that that basically Brexit has changed everything. And since that is not something that Labour is going to revisit, it continues to put a massive wedge now at the centre of the union and means that the cleavages that were present in 2014 are not likely to be reproduced 
anytime soon at all. So, I mean, even though everyone listening might think, well, you know, Brexit's way down my food chain. It's nonetheless the, the character. It's the characteristic issue that created a cliff edge at the border um, and a, a totally different outlook about how you move forward um, in terms of all sorts of things, not just trade, but just relations with your neighbours. It, 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 it kind of typifies and embodies a, a different outlook in Scotland that you generally try and get along with folk and try to make common cause. Um, and all of that is still sitting at the heart of our politics. So, uh, I mean, that's an interesting response that John himself volunteered. You know, it wasn't sort of drilled out of him. They weren't even talking about Brexit at the time. He raised Not. it. So, yeah. I mean, that's interesting in some of the you know commentary that surrounded the, the election. Yeah, because the other aspect of it is because John Curtis has said that in 2014, one of the key deciding factors was the economy. And if we cannot make if we cannot make the most of the fact of the absolute devastating hit to the UK economy and the Scottish economy in particular of Brexit, we're wasting our time, which comes back to media and communications and collaboration and getting and I think you're absolutely right, getting the talents that are in Westminster to actually become spokespersons. And it doesn't have to all be focused on Hollywood, even though that is the centre of power, if you like, for the SNP. We have to bring everybody on board. And the, the communications exercise that takes place in the SNP has to be geared up. And these messages have to be there. Uh, yeah, I love John Curtis yesterday for, a, for another aspect when Martin Geisler uh, said there was only a 70% turnout in the SNP leadership election. He said, no, no, that's fairly standard, you know, that's 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 quite a decent turnout. And I thought, oh, I'll, oh here we kick at that. And uh, the last uh, Labour leadership election in 2020, Starmer got 56%, yeah, that's okay, of a 63% turnout. So, there you go. And the, yeah, well, the actually, that, that is interesting because a lot of people were kind of when, when I came off that section of being on the BBC politics thing, a, a lot of people were saying, but actually, I'm sure the Tories got 82 something percent turnout. So it, it's interesting to put it into a sort of wider context. But it wasn't something that, you know, that particularly bothered him. So and it's not no. that John should be the arbiter of all things, whatever. No, no, no. no. But it does just it, it it is just an interesting one that, you know, I mean, it, it will never know in the same way as people didn't know beforehand how the, this vote would go. And I have to say, I was generally quite amused at the idea that people were floored by the idea that a democratic exercise was taking place, the result of which they did not pre know. Yes. I mean, how very dare people have something that is so kind of, you know, but that again, however, you'd have to assume is because no uh, newspaper or other entity thought it was worth putting the money into finding out in that, you know, to actually sample SNP members as opposed to mm -hmm. voters would take a lot more time to work through, you know, a larger cohort till you finally drilled down and got a statistically relevant group of um, members who were willing to talk to you. Um, and nobody actually, you know, despite everybody hanging on that, you know, half the universe being in Edinburgh yesterday to get the result, nobody had actually wanted to be the ones that would put their hands very deeply in their pockets and produce the, the cash necessary to get that polling done. Because it could have been done. It just wasn't more than once, as John John Curtis pointed out. Yeah. And the the again, back to the, the, the Humza Yusuf acceptance speech, I I thought that his whole focus, and again, which he did through the 
the hustings, which was, I'm a member of a minority. And he clearly stressed the fact of a migrant minority. And I think that that, that, that was that was really, really important, appealing to that, that broad range of what is now Scotland, of those of us whose families have come here over successive generations to make our homes in Scotland and made Scotland the kind of place it is with its pros and its definite cons as well in terms of the tensions that, that, that can arise. And I thought it was particularly pertinent because I don't know if you saw that yesterday there was a threatened Tory rebellion of the illegal mig- over the illegal migration bill, uh, both from uh, those on uh, like uh, on the on uh, the left of the, the Tory party who were seeking to put amendments in in order to to get to create safe and legal routes uh, for migrants to come here. And believe it or not, Suella Braverman is is believed to be at the centre of a a, a a secret coup in order to make the bill that she introduced even more restrictive in terms of and draconian in terms of the what uh, people who can who can come here i mean she's making it harder suggesting making it harder to challenge uh, removal orders issued by court and making a duty to remove anyone any migrant irrespective of any order issued by the european court of human rights so the rumor is that she's behind that these tory amendments uh, didn't pass. But what's also more striking was the fact, and I think the, the SNP amendment uh, didn't didn't get through, and it was voted down entirely by the, the, the total totality of the Conservative Party, which was that asylum seekers who claim to be victims of crime, human trafficking, or deprived of the human rights should be allowed to remain in the UK during their asylum process. It failed. Another one, the unaccompanied children, I think there's a Labour amendment, unaccompanied children and asylum seekers coming from the EU should be allowed into the UK for family reunion. And that's what we're, again, to come back to it. I think that compare and contrast the Humza Yusuf who comes from a migrant background, who actually still can relate to that whole humanity of being a migrant, seeking to escape from war-torn areas and seeking to escape to a safe country where there may be family. And these amendments were voted down. And Rishi Sunak is attempting to keep his right wing on board. And we can see where it's going if Suella Braverman gets away. There'll be even more restrictive measures put in place. And it's inhuman. And that is the compare and contrast between Hamza Yusuf, no matter what we think of him. And people will have their different perspectives on him, given that the the, the leadership campaign that we've just gone through. But that is the compare and contrast with the potential of a modern Scotland and the attitude that we have to migrants and those who are on the least of us, if you like, and those who are most oppressed and what is going on at Westminster and Rishi Sunak attempting to hold that party together with this increasing drift to the right and, with, and, and people like Suella Braverman and Lee Anderson being at the top of the party. Yep. And uh, I mean, quite a, a, as well as all of that on on the human rights aspect of the migrants situation. Um, there's also this question of whether or not you're actually going to abide by international law, um, yeah. which is, is an extraordinary thing that we should be back at this. But I mean, I think the Scots are tediously law abiding. And it also, in a sense, um, pushes the argument that the, the those who, in a funny kind of way, those who abide by the status quo, as in who are trying to do things by the book, are now the Scots 
for better or worse. Yes. And there's a lot of people say, just chuck the book if nobody else is playing by it. But, you know, what, what they're still on about, that right-wing group, with the, 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 I, I think, unfortunately, named Danny Kruger, which just brings to mind too many horrible slasher films from the past to me. Yeah. But, um, you know, these guys uh, have been trying to push the, the the Tory government to remove domestic and international courts' ability to block deportation flights to Rwanda, which, especially in the case of removing the power of international courts to intervene, does essentially mean that we're heading out of the European um, Convention of Human Rights. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff is 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 on every count something that if you were to say to the Scots, here's the shape of how you want to treat uh, folk coming from. I mean, you can't even believe it. I'm seeing another thing here that today there's going to be an announcement that 9000 Afghan refugees who fled the Taliban just, you know, mm-hmm. less than two years ago. They're in hotels at the moment. They'll all be given notice to find alternative accommodation by the end of this year. And what that means is they'll ha- they'll be offered one property to accept or then they'll become homeless. Right. So it's kind of like, yeah, OK, is that what anybody thinks is a good idea? <laughs> uh, but but yes, it's all sitting. We've taken our eye, in a sense, off the ball about what the constant point of contrast is uh, with any uh, behaviour or objectives of the, the SNP government here. This is I mean, the people were talking yesterday about uh, Humzi Yusuf's record in health. And, you know, without getting into it too much, I said, well, you know, <clears throat> and I know they were not exactly contemporaneous. But let's look at the last health minister in England, Matt Hancock. Yes. I mean, is that guy, you know, the guy who was fitted up by led by donkeys and discovered to be basically, you know, available for hiring for what was it? He doesn't get out of bed for less than 10,000 a day. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, this and how is it that you can end up with someone like that who somehow doesn't seem to put a massive hole in the case for voting Tory in Scotland when you've got a health minister who was working his blooming butt off um, and still has the best functioning health service within the UK, albeit that is a low bar, you know. So, yeah, we need to get back to swiveling around a little bit here and seeing that we're working within a context and that. That, however, a wider context in which Wales and Northern Ireland are finding better ways, eventually Northern Ireland, to move ahead in this devolved situation. So there's no blooming resting on laurels here. We have to get going. Yeah. And if anybody hasn't seen it yet, I mean, there's a trailer out um, led by donkeys because what what happened was they set up this fake South Korean uh, international company called Han Seong, got in touch with 20 odd uh, MPs who are noted to have uh, a lot of outside interests. Five got back to them. I think they're all conservatives. One sus that was a scam. Uh, or a sting immediately, but Sir Graham Brady, Quasi Quartin, Matt Hancock, and another whose name I can't remember at the time, all went along with it. And uh, I think Sir Graham Brady was only asking for a mere £6,000 a day, whereas Quasi Quartin and uh, Matt Hancock were asking for ten grand a day. You know, and it just goes to show that, that they're, and I've often said it before, that MPs ought to sit there like footballers and there should be their sponsors on their strips. You know, put it on the back, who's paying the money for this? 
Yes, and this was a point that was raised at the Scotonomics event, which actually did have great contributions uh, about the, the need for a, uh, an independent Scottish currency, ASAP, to provide stability, actually, from Richard Murphy, Tim, Tim Ryder and, and many others. And actually, a fascinating session with uh, economists, two female economists, one from Jamaica and one from Australia, uh, brought in on a, on a link talking about exactly the mandate you would give an, um, a, a new reserve bank in, in Scotland come the day. So there was all of that within that event. But the thing that was uh, particularly interesting, though, was this question of lobbying. And I mean, obviously, Scotland doesn't have the kind of, you know, put the money on the counter <laughs> levels yeah. of fast lane VIP treatment, crony contract stuff. I mean, that's not you know, that's not ostensibly anyway the issue. And if, if there was something like that happening, the media has really missed a trick in not being able to bring any of the any evidence of it forward. The bigger issue that was being identified by a lot of speakers was um, the the bringing in of kind of, uh, you know, the consultants, the mm -hmm. corporate consultants to help you shape legislation in the first instance. And then sometimes they seem to end up being involved in the very business of pulling together legislation and all the time advising what is and isn't possible. And I think, you know, that some of those uh, kind of, for example, the the uh, cap that was placed on the auction uh, of licenses for Scotland, the offshore licenses, mm -hmm. which, you know, many people were saying there is just no precedent almost anywhere in history for putting an upper cap on any uh, kind of, you know, license round. Um, it seems that the answer was that, that was advised by consultants. Mm. So what has to be, and this is something, you know, Commonweal has banged on about a lot, many other people too, but that's the danger of you bringing in the guys who look like they're the, you know, they're the high rollers. They're the folk with, you know, the sharp jackets with kind of the, the, the multi-million pound empires within their consultancies behind them. And not the folk who are at the sharp end, you know. Uh, so that's got to there's got to be something about that, too, because I think that's what put an over-reliance on the experts. And, you know, there are many experts in life uh, and many of them are the people who are at the sharp end trying to deal with stuff. You've got to widen the pool of who gets in to, to be able to shape government and not allow consultants to be in the shaping process of legislation. Oh, yeah, because we've all seen what happens is then down at Westminster, you bring in folk from these these tax advisory companies to actually advise you on the legislation to, to actually tighten up and, and create uh, tax legislation. And lo and behold, they go they, they go back and then advise their clients about how to how yeah. to avoid the, these very rules that they put in place. But it's absolutely right, Leslie, when we talk about collaboration and bringing people in, it's got to be a wider one than I feel that the, and you've clearly identified of the, the great and the good and those who have, have made a career in these areas what, and widening the pool to take, in, take on board those who are experts, but not, not establishment experts, if you like, and bring them in and get these different voices. And that's, Again, looking at it, I would be intrigued to see, one, the shape of the cabinet and how collaborative that cabinet can be and, and the different voices that are going to be within it and the, the roles they will take up. And then two, and I think that anti-poverty uh, summit that he's, he's going to call, well, I'll be intrigued to see who brings on board there. And 
And it's not just holding the summit. It's actually what's done afterwards as well and how this how this progresses. I'm. But I would say three in. I mean, well, there's three, four, mm -hmm. five, six. I'm sure everybody's yeah. sitting thinking of their own three, four, five, six here. I'd still think the energy one is an absolutely crucial yeah. one to have a similar sort of um, uh, kind of gathering on. These are shorthand in many respects for citizens assemblies that, yeah, yeah. that sit and yeah. do a lot of these things more thoroughly. And, th th you know, the. I was thinking, too, that although people want to see immediate change in a lot of things, you know, we're at the point now where there's been lots of changes of tack. You know, what you want is something that the public can get behind on a lot of issues. And I appreciate mm -hmm. that it is difficult that Gash Regan was talking about a citizens assembly for gender recognition. I mean, as somebody, I can't remember who it was. It could have been Pat Patrick Harvey said, um, you know, well, what do you do with the people who, you know, that's fine. Except we've got legislation. We've been through this already. Yeah. It's too late to sort of fling something out once um, a set of people have an expectation that they have some new rights coming their way. And then it gets tossed out to a citizens assembly to maybe mash that around a bit and come up with less. So let's learn the lesson from that. Don't wait, yeah. you know, on on any vexed issues to, to try to do something really different. And please look at the incredible results there's been. Uh, particularly in Ireland, when you do trust people before you've got a, a, a legislative process in gear to try and tackle some of these big issues. But my number three would still be that the SNP has to get more democratic because for lots of people, um, the SNP conference was a way that some of the kind of more awkward issues got got discussed. That then got coverage and that then got a buy-in from the public, because let's look at just what's happened over this uh, leadership election. <laughs> one mm. one tremendously good outcome is that I don't know how many things I've been on where people have asked me about with with interest about the strategy for independence. Begora, yeah. you know, normalising independence, normalising the idea that we haven't gone away, normalising the idea we'll be back for sure, suggesting that it's a deeply problematic thing, which it actually is. But not suggesting it's trivial, not suggesting it's irrelevant, not suggesting all the sort of stampy footy stuff that you tend to get, you know, from Douglas Ross and Anna Sarwar. That's an outrage that we're even thinking about it at a time like this. There's been none of that, because just as there was within the Tory leadership contest, and I do hate to create any comparison, but nonetheless, it's still there in people's heads. You know, there was a level of, of seriousness applied to practically all the ideas that were coming out of the Tory party. Well, you know, in Scotland, at least, there's been some serious time given to um, all the aspirations of a party that thinks that, you know, Britain is not a destination for it. I've been able to say things, um, you know, that I have not been able to say outside this leadership campaign simply because nobody's taking that broader sweep about where Scotland stands, you know, as a social democracy inside a conservative state. Now, and every time I've said that yesterday, which was quite a lot, mm -hmm. the conversation just stopped there. The interviewer sort of nodded and I said, yeah, OK, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and you think, well, you know, this is an extraordinary thing. And that's what both party conferences normally give a bit of a boost. Any any focus. I mean, Oscar Wilde was probably right. You know, that the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. And although everybody, you know, there will be a consensus of opinion that it has been a terrible contest because people took so many lumps out of each other, maybe he's I, maybe he's not, actually, you know, because yeah. nonetheless, um, everybody was asked, uh, you know, with some insistence by journalists, 
What is your solution then for this impasse and independence? Well, I mean, that's quite something. Now, the, the way that gets continued is more cam- another cam- election campaign. And there's no way that 2024, the general election, could just be another one. You know, after all we've been through, there's got to be, if it's not going to be a de facto election, there's going to have to be something about it that makes it a different shout mm-hmm. than what we've been through already. And there needs to be a strategy that involves the yes movement properly um, so that and that's a strategy as well, not a last minute run to the line. So all of that is a bit different than what's happened before. But the the question of of independence remaining as a kind of perfectly legitimate thing to want to discuss, um, you know, that that happens by essentially having some sort of moment of the headlines and a proper conference in October where it's not stage managed. And if there are debates about the way forward, have them, because the lesson of everything that's happened is when the worst thing possibly happens, when some of your from your own side stands in your face and says, basically, you're shite, you, you know, you can recover from even that. So let's get to the stage where we're not running scared of proper debates, because, you know, that when you get into having more heads in the room on the difficulty, you share that with the public. And that sharing is part of the process of bringing people on towards independence. Yep. And. That you said that that we're back in terms of uh, independence, and I think that was that is a great point because Isabel Hardiman yesterday was saying, "Oh, it's 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 all far away in the future now," and oh, look, it was left at the end of the 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 thing. It wasn't really the focus of what Hamzuzu uh, was talking about, but it is that whole point of the whole Which, thing. Is again, holistic. I've got to say, John Curtis leapt in and said, yes. "Just watch the pattern of everything he sat through," and he's quite right. All uh, SNP leaders leave the talk about independence to the end so that they end up on a, on a high note. So, yeah. you know, yeah, we're not we're not going anywhere. The polls show that. But we're not going to be taken for suckers. And we need to have proper debate through the prism of the SNP, very particularly because that is a, a, a way for SNP supporters to feel that everything they're feeling is actually being properly mediated and discussed within the SNP. And if you shut down the conference, you shut down far more than just the 200, 400, 1,000 delegates in the room. You're shutting down Scotland. So you can't do that anymore. Aye. And on that uh, refusal to to not shut up and and get the point across, I believe you're appearing on uh, the BBC Scotland's flagship debate night. Yeah, well, it's... It is. It's Wednesday. It's tomorrow night. So uh, it's in Aberdeen. I don't know quite who else is in the. Oh, I should have actually looked, but it was in the middle of uh, (laughs) tweeted out. But I mean, yesterday I didn't know if I was coming or going, you know, just walking around like a drone from sort of corner to corner and studio to studio. And is it FaceTime? Is it whatever? So, yeah, yeah, it is. It's Wednesday night debate night. Not quite sure when it's on because it's pre-recorded. So, um, yes, I hope that'll be all right. Mm. Yes, well, yeah. I mean, and you'll be in front of a live audience, which we were in Belfast. And I don't know about you. I find that was tremendously interesting to have that, that interaction with, with real people. When we, you managed to persuade them to actually start asking us questions. And uh, it was it was exciting. It was entertaining and uh, thoroughly enjoyable. And we hope you found this week's Leslie Rarick podcast thoroughly enjoyable. And we'll see you next week, Johns. 